Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Welcome back, listeners. I'm your host, Sonia Senek. Today, we welcome an incredible team. Rhiannon Davies and Kathy Bennett are both the founding and managing partners of Sandpiper Ventures. They are running one of the first venture funds in Canada, investing in women-led companies at the seed stage, and among the first all-woman GP national funds in Canada. So, what does investment look like at the intersection of impact and venture capital pace growth? Rhiannon's business leadership spans Europe, Asia, South, and North America. She built and led the $2 billion revenue subsidiary of Grand Vision and was COO and board director that expanded Grand Vision into 20 new markets through multiple acquisitions and organic growth to a successful IPO that raised $1.5 billion and ranked in the top 10 IPOs in 2015. Now a little bit about Kathy. With over 35 years of business leadership, Kathy's own company, Bennett Group of Companies, grew from a small group of service businesses to operations in commercial and industrial construction, industrial manufacturing, human resource support, and more. She has served as a member of the Newfoundland and Labrador House of Assembly, serving in the cabinet as a minister of finance, president of the treasury board, minister responsible for the status of women, and the office of the chief information officer. It was an absolute joy to speak to Kathy and Rhiannon. You could feel their passion as they discussed the way that entrepreneurship and innovation can deliver meaningful change in business, community, and society at large. Please enjoy Rhiannon Davies and Kathy Bennett. So Kathy, I'm actually going to start with you. You have more than 35 years experience as an entrepreneur, business executive, and innovator in restaurant operations, virtual office services, real estate, and commercial construction. Wow. Firstly, it's a really broad set of things. Can you share a bit with us about how you started to decide where to chart your career path? I think for me, it was, I got addicted to operations probably at too early of an age and realized I was pretty good at it. And that addiction to operations manifested itself into a desire to exercise an entrepreneurial scratch that I had as a very young child. So the, you know, the restaurant business that I grew up in was hugely disciplined and I like that. And it allowed for, you know, some pretty impressive results when you focused on the operations plan that was, you know, fed from the strategy. And for me, it was very goals focused. I was like an addict. It was definitely a, a bit of a, an addiction for me. What was the most addictive part? Was it that you could see the reward of achieving those milestones, ticking things off the list, getting everyone headed in the right direction? What is the essence of operations that you enjoy so much? Initially, it was all of those. But what became super addictive was the continuous improvement part, right? It was realizing that there wasn't a plateau. There was always another place you could go. There was another destination. There was another more aggressive KPI. There was another more aggressive standard. So while initially in the early days, it was just to get to the top of that mountain, that was the, the rush. It was very quickly followed with 360 degree ability to be able to continuously improve and iterate on things that, and ideate on things that would be, you know, solutions orientated so you could go faster and get more done and get more results. So for me, that was the true addiction was that continuous improvement piece. And Rhiannon, you grew up in New Brunswick and studied in Montreal. 
and lived for 18 years in Amsterdam. From your bio, we also read that you spent a year on a sailboat with your family. Can you share a bit about your studies, your career journey, and also where does that passion for the ocean stem from? I actually, my studies took me into a degree in political science and a degree in engineering. So I guess that sort of sums up my eagerness for learning in, and also a bit of a dichotomy in my personality that I have a desire for sort of the social development side of things and more of a philosophical approach and a policy approach. And I love the technical side of things as well. I rather early in my career pathway moved over to the Netherlands initially for an 18-month period that turned into, indeed, an 18-19 year trajectory. And my focus sort of grew from building manufacturing and supply chain solutions in complex environments towards a more commercial side of things, and always in companies that were going through major scale and major change, new market entries, acquisitions, sort of high growth trajectories. And I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie when it comes to that. But I'm also very much a family-focused person and a person who needs to be undergoing constant change. And I grew up sailing. I love the power of the wind. I love the freedom of the ocean and the space. It's sort of uncharted territory on Earth for me, which is fascinating. And at a certain point in my career and business trajectory, we just taken a company public. I'd spent two years sort of stabilizing and it seemed like a perfect moment to take a break and reassess. My kids were nine and 11 at the time. So it was a really a perfect moment when they still actually wanted to spend time with me for us <laughs> to dive in and explore that other side of my character, which was really about sort of charting new pathways and freedom and a love for the sea. And it seems as though to many, wow, you know, it sounds like a big adventure. And it was, but it was a sort of a strategically planned adventure and an opportunity to completely refocus on, on something else, visit a number of companies, spend a, an incredible amount of time with my family and really evaluate what I wanted to do next. I hope I captured all your question there. Oh yeah. <laughs> but we have a full hour. I have more questions, but I want to ask Rhiannon, when you spent that year refocusing and clarifying what that next step will be, what fell away for you from your priority list and what really showed up on that priority list stronger than ever? What clarity did you get from spending that year on the ocean? I stopped really caring about what others thought and I don't mean in a cold way. I obviously still really embrace the people around me and in my community and beyond, but I stopped worrying about it. And I started thinking about it much more from the perspective of rather than what can I accomplish for myself in the eyes of others, I started to think much more about what kind of impact can I have in ways that are more important. So it wasn't just about chasing an IPO or chasing a new market or chasing an acquisition. It was much more about chasing what is the long-term sustainable impact of what I am doing. And, and that sounds very deep and philosophical, but it was actually a very natural, slow, normal process of a recognition of something that actually I feel makes very logical sense. And Kathy, your Bennett group of companies has massively grown from being a small group of service businesses to operations in a very broad range of industries. What was your original vision for the Bennett Group? And do you feel like you've brought that vision to life? Well, I think the vision changed over time. I mean, initially, it was just to have 
no debt in the hospitality industry, you know, which was uh, quite ambitious for somebody who was in their 20s. And it morphed into a desire to have companies that were, you know, grown out of the experiences that we had had in our primary business. And then over time, I really had put a lot of time and effort into creating a plan that would allow the company to grow and become potentially a second generation company. But for me, one of the things that was really important was not to assume that the second generation was overly interested in the first generation's (laughs) success. So we actually worked extensively with a family business advisor to assess that at a very early age with our kids and to make a determination as to whether my ambition for Bennett Group of Companies was our family ambition for Bennett Group of Companies. And when it became uh, clearer for me after I spent a few years in public office that my ambition and their ambition wasn't necessarily aligned, you know, we made the difficult but happy decision to sell the group of companies. Listening to Kathy reflect on her journey, I wondered about the longevity of family businesses. According to Cornell University, the average lifespan of a family-owned business is 24 years. In the United States, about 40% of family-owned businesses turn into second-generation businesses, and approximately 13% of those are passed down successfully to a third generation, with only 3% to a fourth generation or beyond. NASDAQ estimates that 70% of wealthy families will lose their wealth by the second generation, and 90% will lose it by the third. I can only imagine how these statistics inspired the HBO hit, Succession. But these stats also illustrate the importance of succession planning. So I asked Kathy, how did it feel to sell her company instead of passing it along to her children? And I think for me as a founder, because I was obviously the founder of our little company and here on the East Coast, it was a really tragic personal journey for me when we sold. It was the right choice for the family and the right choice for me professionally now, but it was a sad effort as a founder to leave what was almost an entity that I had a lot of passion for, a lot of love for. So, you know, when I see founders now going through journeys to make decisions about, you know, how do I integrate family and integrate it into my business aspirations, I have a lot of empathy for those uh, difficult decisions. And ultimately, in my case, I was privileged and very lucky to have fate cross my path in a way that I hadn't really expected, but I was very excited about. And I'm sure we'll get to that in a few minutes. Kathy, can I ask when you use the word tragic or sad, when you think back to that time, what was the hardest piece for you to let go of as you were going through the process of making, like you said, the right decision for the company, but a tough personal decision for you? Yeah, I think the hardest thing was that I had to let go of what became a really personal dream for me, which was second and third generation, and recognize that there's a different way to build that and a different way to potentially leave a legacy of impact that Rianne spoke about a few minutes ago in the second generation that's in my family. Like, So my kids can have an impact in a different way than maybe being a wealthy second generation company leader. So it was a letting go of the dream, but there had been many times in my life where I've had to let go of a dream. So it was much easier to do it in my late 50s than it would have been in my 20s. And I uh, sometimes it's good to say goodbye to stuff. And so in parallel, you're both contemplating your legacies, reflecting on you know decades of work in your respective industries. 
Can we talk a bit about that fateful paths crossing? And Rhiannon, when did you first meet Kathy? And can you take us back to the conversation around starting Sandpiper Ventures? Mm-hmm. Well, Kathy and I, our paths crossed, and I would say our eyes met during a CDL session. And that was to a great extent, sort of our introduction to many of the things that we're doing now. There were a group of women involved in the CDL, very few at the time, and that's changed significantly uh, since then. And uh, our third partner, Sarah Young, had sort of been thinking around what kind of gaps there are in the innovation economy, in the technology space, and in early stage entrepreneurship, and really recognizing that certainly in Atlantic Canada, there was a lack of participation from women on either as investors and, and as founders, and something needed to change on that. And that was really the beginning of the conversation. And that conversation evolved through a significant amount of research, a number of glasses of wine, cups of coffee, trips. <laughs> And ultimately culminated in Sandpiper, but it really started as a seed of a recognition of both sort of a social construct that was very unhealthy, but an opportunity that could result from that to kind of bring our backgrounds and what we were doing to something underrepresented and give it a platform and ultimately give it some capital. Rhiannon, when you said a social construct that's misunderstood or misrepresented, can you say a little more about that? In sort of my pathway, I've seen some real change. If I look back to my engineering class when I started, it was 25% women. You know, at McGill now there's more than 50% women. If I look at the boards that I've been sitting on, we're sort of moving towards a 30%. And a lot of effort has been spent on making sure that there are more inclusive spaces. And we have a long way to go. But then I stepped back into the innovation economy and the people that are creating the solutions that are going to solve the problems that we're facing in the world today are white men. And that's just not going to work. So that's the social construct where I see sort of limited, but still good progress in other areas of the business world, but not in the innovation world. And that's the place where of all places, it's so important to make sure that everybody has a place and everybody's innovation is included. So it was really shocking, negatively enlightening to see that the proportions that were becoming sort of 20, 30% in the rest of the world were actually still at two and 3% for women's access to capital. And then if you look at people in other underrepresented intersectional areas, BIPOC women, LGBTQ2 spirited women, women with disabilities, there aren't even any statistics because the numbers are so low. So it was for me just a shocking revelation of, oh my goodness, we're missing out on a huge opportunity. And quite frankly, we're building a future that is even worse than today. Kathy, did that resonate with you very strongly at the same time? Or was it the conversations with Rhiannon and Sarah that really brought you into recognizing that gap? Or did you recognize that as an issue to address prior to getting into discussions about the fund? Yeah, I think for me, I had the privilege when I was in public office to serve as Minister of Status of Women. And as part of that portfolio, and I also had finance minister, uh, which was you know one of the rare times that it's ever happened in Canada. I think, I don't know if it's ever if it's happened since in the provinces, but one of the things that I got a chance to see through that portfolio was how economics and access to cash, and I mean cash in some cases, can be such a scary place for a woman and for somebody who is battered, who is 
marginalized, who is on the sideline. And I'm talking about from a domestic violence perspective and Mm -hmm. from all the things that are very tragic in that world. And I think for me, it highlighted that ease of which I had experienced access to capital. So in my 20s, when, you know, somebody said, "Okay, we'll partner with you, we'll joint venture with you and let's walk to the bank and get six million bucks to open up your business. I thought that was all about me in my 20s. (laughs) It took me time to realize that, no, no, this was because I had, you know, a large corporation standing behind me that made access to capital very, very easy for me. And I was very privileged to be able to have that happen. So I was, when I left public office, I was committed to figuring out how to change the access to capital for women. And it wasn't solely on the innovation economy. It was across the board. I did some work with some organizations that, you know, talked about, you know, small loans to Mm -hmm. companies. And we did a project for three years on that. And it was during this period of time that I had the privilege to get invited to CDL, of which, by the way, I thought it was in the wrong room. I thought there's <laughs> nothing a little old entrepreneur like me has to offer these you know, highly intelligent inventors of the next you know things that are going to solve all the problems in the world. But one thing I could tell very clearly was that the girls and the women, importantly, the women who were in, in the rooms were, they needed their voices amplified. Just like you know, I would have done as a, a minister for responsible status women. Just like I would have done as a female, you know, a first female operator of a large JV of the business that I was in before. And I think you know, Rhiannon's right. Our eyes met in CDL. I think the first time we had we, we sat close to each other was actually at Bolta when we were going through a presentation, a conversation with the community. I don't even think we at that point even knew each other's names, Rhiannon and. And there was a presentation that we had been had been organized and it was around access to capital for female founders in the innovation space. And all Rihanna and I were doing was nodding our head and winking at each other and saying, <laughs> yeah, this is all right. This, all these facts are true. And then when you came together to start talking about it and ideating about the solutions, it was clear that the you know what we needed to do was to pool money, find money, put it in a pot and make sure that these fantastic founders who are have such amazing ideas aren't left off of the solutions agenda because otherwise it's going to take us, you know, three times as long to fix the problems of the world. And we just don't have that time anymore. We need all hands on deck and we need all, all the ideas being looked at by venture capitalists. If we're going to have a world that's going to be better for that second generation I talked about, that's so important to me. So I think, you know, it's been a real, it was a innate passion that was has been fed, you know, substantially over the last number of years. And working with the the two partners that I work with and the team team we have has been a, some of the best days of my life. I'm really proud to be a small part of my very intelligent partners are building. Kathy, you raise a really great point about mentorship. I think there's a really healthy amount of conversation around the importance of mentorship for early stage founders. Ran and I'd ask, they have a small business or they're thinking about scaling their company. How do you transform a conversation with a mentor from advice to, hey, could you back my company? I'm thinking of the next phase and I need some capital to do it. What's some advice that you give some early stage founders on how to transform that conversation? Hmm. I think first off, make sure that it is transformable before you even start the conversation. So make sure that you've done your research and initiate the conversation with some very straightforward asks. And this is a huge generalization, but 
we all need to dare to have the conversations that are sometimes more difficult. And asking for money is one of the most difficult things that you can possibly do. So dare to do that because the worst thing that can happen to you is that somebody says no. So I think the biggest thing is make sure that you're talking to the right people and by the right people, that they are actually the people that have capital, that they are actually the people that are going to be transparent with you about your potential for access. And they're also the right people in that they have the experience to evaluate with you what you're doing and what you need to do in the future. Because indeed, women are offered all sorts of programmatic support, all sorts of mentorship, when our research has really indicated that what they're looking for is capital, but is also that partner who's been there and can take them through very sort of surgical issues in how their business is growing and developing. Rhiannon, your first exit was from a company called Royal Numico when it was acquired by Group Danone in 2007. Can you think back to what that journey was like and what were the surgical items that needed to be dealt with as you were going through that acquisition? Mm. And what was your biggest lesson from that acquisition process? Make sure your house is really well in order is incredibly important. Make sure that you're like clean the baseboards, baseboards, make sure that there are no hidden skeletons in the closet. Do not over promise or over present, but be very ambitious. And I was on a panel recently with a founder who articulated this so beautifully that I'm going to steal it from her. And she welcomes that. But make sure that when you are presenting your company, and this applies to an acquisition or an IPO or any fundraise, your barometer should be pointing towards kind of the awesome truth and almost to going too far and over-promising. So be on that sharp, sharp edge because you have a tendency to under-prepare and under-promise. So let's make sure that we actually are speaking the awesome truth, but make sure that that awesome truth has the data and the rigor and the governance to support it. Well-researched awesome truth. And Kathy, can you describe to us the thesis behind Sandpiper Ventures as it stands right now? It is the second largest women-led fund in the country. And I would love to learn more about what types of companies you're looking to support with the fund? So we support the companies that have women founders with meaningful equity. And by meaningful, you know, the boys can't have brought you in in the last 30 days. You have to be a participant in the growth of the company because we want that founder to have the same executive opportunities and experiences as the company grows and sitting at the table for a period of time as a significant shareholder makes a difference. We want to make sure that the company has is in you know certain sweet spots that we can add value. And currently those would include clean tech, health tech. We look at a small number of direct-to-consumer and we do a fair bit of SaaS investments. And because we're looking for as a venture capital firm, we're looking for a, a certain return for our investors. So we're looking to those companies that can grow and scale at a pace of which allows for a return to our investors that we're committing to them. And I think we, we want to make sure that the company from an analysis perspective has a market share opportunity, either in a new market space or a market steel space that allows them for a substantial global presence. I mean, we're not 
I would not have been a candidate, for example, for Sandpiper's investment thesis in my 20s. But that's okay, because there are lots of other places for those of you that are listening. You know, VC is not the only capital that's specifically designed for innovation companies, but there's private equity, there's debt instruments, there's angel investing that can support those founders that maybe have a pace of growth in their company that might be slightly different from the very aggressive pace of growth that we're looking for through a VC fund. Kathy mentioned a few different ways that startups can obtain funding. Many startups will go through various funding rounds that correspond with the stage and maturity of their company, pre-seed, seed, and series A, B, C, and more. In each of these funding rounds, startups may have different types of investors and capital. For example, angel investors. These are typically high net worth individuals who look to invest into startups with anything from a few thousand dollars to a million or more. There's also crowdfunding, like Kickstarter campaigns. This is a method of raising capital through the collective effort of friends, family, customers, and individual investors. There's also venture capital. VC investments are usually high risk, but they also have the potential for massive exponential growth. So Sandpiper Ventures is a venture capital firm. I wanted to learn from Rhiannon. Why did she, Kathy, and Sarah decide that VC was the right path for them? We are operators and we bring our backgrounds to the table in very deliberate ways to support the sort of growth and development of the companies that we invest in, that we work with. And that's one of the additional differentiators. Rhiannon, when you say that you are operators, you built and led the $2 billion revenue subsidiary of Grand Vision. For those who aren't familiar, can you share a bit more about Grand Vision and your work to develop the company with 44% growth and expansion into 20 new markets through multiple acquisitions? Yeah, Grand Vision was a bit of an unfair anomaly out in the world in that it was a When I came in, it was essentially a holding company of two people that were overseeing a company that was generating two and a half billion in revenue. It was a collection of a number of small acquisitions that was overseen by the holding company of a PE backed of a private equity company called HAL, which is the family behind the Holland America line. And when I joined Grand Vision, the mandate was to build a company. So it was like being in a startup, but being in a startup with a hugely unfair advantage of having significant amount of cash and capital. Because the eye care industry, if it's done at scale, is an incredibly profitable space to be in. So we had this very profitable, high growth, non-existent company and created it and built that backbone. And the backbone was was the piece that I created and became the CEO of that essentially took the magnitude of Grand Vision and the profitability and built efficiencies, took advantage of purchasing power, aligned uh, marketing, and really built it into a global multinational, moved into a number of other countries through organic growth and acquisition of both technologies and retail spaces. And then ultimately, and this was by design, floated 20% of the company on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange in 2015. So that was the background. And when I left, the company was at close to 4 million euros in revenue. We raised one and a half billion and I stuck around for a couple of years before handing over the reins to the new, more publicly focused leadership. And the Grand Vision IPO that you mentioned raised 1.5 billion. It was actually ranked in the top 10 global IPOs of 2015. 
What lessons did you learn from that experience? And how did your previous work with Royal Numico prepare you for that journey? The work with Numico helped me to build the foundation and the strategy for my portion of Grand Vision in that it taught me about sort of building efficiencies, driving cost savings, driving margin, driving growth, how to execute an acquisition and how to run a company and a team efficiently. What the Grand Vision and the IPO process taught me that I hadn't learned was the importance of narrative. Mm. And that is... I mean, so much of the IPO process, and this is exactly the same, and IPO is fundraising. And so any of our founders are going through the same process. I had days of late nights working with our consultants to figure out and crying a lot about how I could articulate what we built and what we'd done. And it was very difficult. And it went yeah. from what I thought was a good story to a really great story and nothing changed in the fundament, but the way it was articulated was changed. And that for me was a learning to say the way that you communicate what you're building and the approach that you take to how you converse about what you've achieved is so incredibly important. And our third general partner, Sarah Young, is actually comes from a communications background. And you see the value that she brings because she can support the companies in building this narrative and this articulation. And I think that's such an important piece You can invent something wonderful. You can create incredible things. You can build a wonderful team. You can have a great strategy. But in order to fundraise, you need to have a wonderful narrative. And Rhiannon, for operations addicts like Kathy or super technical people that are listening that are always thinking about the product or the processes, what do you think gets in the way for folks not valuing that narrative piece and the storytelling piece? Like what advice would you give to folks that are heads down in their company building, but need to spend that time like you did evaluating and crafting a new narrative and a new story? Find somebody who's willing to listen to your story over and over again and give you very (laughs) honest feedback on it and be open to the painful truth in hearing that feedback, because (laughs) I was not initially, and man, it was painful, but really make sure that you find somebody. And that's one of the great roles of an excellent mentor is being able to support the development of that narrative. And more importantly, being able to provide very transparent and constructive feedback when the narrative is, is not as compelling as it could be. It's so wonderful to hear the broad distribution of your backgrounds between Rhiannon's experience, Sarah's experience in comms. Kathy, I want to go back to, you touched briefly on your experience in serving in the Newfoundland and Labrador House of Assembly as the Minister of Finance, President of the Treasury Board, Minister Responsible for the Status of Women, and the Office of the Chief Information Officer. So I'm assuming that was a very busy four years, firstly. And Mm -hmm. can you share with us a bit about that journey and what you've most taken away from it in the way you do your work in supporting founders through Sandpiper Ventures now? I think there is real value in having access to somebody who has kind of been behind the veil in governments generally, because I think it's often assumed that they operate like a business and particularly if we're selling to them. I mean, I think about folks that are building health tech and, you know, think it's going to be really simple 
to go to the local health department or the local hospital or there's a procurement area. Like it just doesn't work that way. And certainly in Canada, I'd argue probably not that way around the world. And I think there's value in finding folks that can provide you some experience stories from what they've seen, particularly when you're dealing with governments, whether it's with non-dilutive capital, whether it's with procurement, whether it's with regulatory frameworks. Because again, on the outside, looking in, we all assume it's a certain way. And I think until you get inside on the other side of that veil, it's difficult to appreciate that it isn't. And for folks that are are listening who have products that are going to be regulated or products that they think they're going to sell to governments, my advice would be is to find somebody who's you know has some experience doing what you're doing before, who's been successful in business, or find somebody who's had some exposure to those pieces that can be challenging to understand. I think back you know, Sonia, to the CDL recovery work that folks did around the early days of the pandemic. And we were all on the outside expecting that it would be easy to support our friends and neighbors who were on the inside and very quickly realized that even in a pandemic, it was challenging. And, you know, lots of folks stood up to get it done, but it's not easy to deal with pathways that aren't built for commercial relationships. They're built for you know, different reasons and different processes that actually govern them. So I guess that would be my advice there. Kathy, what did you not know before you went into that experience in service that you now know? Is it just the way that it functions and the way it works better? Or is there anything else that's resonant from that experience for you? Yeah, I mean, you talked earlier about a little bit about fundraising advice for folks. I think one of the things I learned is that the timeline of an entrepreneur and the timeline of regulators, uh, government agencies, it's you're like in two different planets, yeah. right? So my advice to founders, particularly women, especially in med tech space, health tech, raise twice as much money as you think you're going to need, because it's going to take you twice as long as you think to get answers from potential customers. And you're going to need that capital to be able to improve your product and improve the story, the narrative about your product. So folks can buy it and understand it and see the value of it and see the business case of implementing it. So to me, it's about, you know, more money, more time when you're dealing with products or dealing with things that you think are going to serve the public interest and be purchased by or used by or supported by government agencies. The other thing I I think I learned, which I think is helpful now, you know, I think women in general and underrepresented founders, especially have way more burdens that we carry in the care economy than most would recognize. We saw that emerge through the pandemic when we had you know, so many women left the workforce because they had no other alternative but to be the stay-at-home parent. And I think for founders, particularly women and underrepresented founders who have extra burdens, I think I learned a higher awareness of empathy to that journey we're pretty proud at Sandpiper that we, you know, we've got three little Sandpiperettes that have happened. Sandpiper started. And I don't know how many venture capital firms you would see who are advocating to their founders, take the full time. Like, let's figure out a way to let you take the full time that you need. You don't need to get that. We want you to take that parental leave. And I think that empathy was built from the work I did through the status of a women minister portfolio because you get to see some of the realities of what happens if we don't allow women and parents to take that time, if we don't pay attention to 
opportunities for early learning and opportunities for enhancing childcare and, and what it means to our economy and what it means to our innovation agenda, it is very disruptive and not progressive. So I think that empathy I take into, at least I feel I take into our Sandpiper deliberations and into the work we do with our founders and assessments of deals. What's so interesting, Kathy, about that is it sounds like a policy just saying, hey, take time. This will still be here when you're back. Build your family or, or take the time you need so that you can experience your life or do what you need to do. It sounds like it's a policy, but what it is rooted in is the value system and how you value time, how you value the people that are in the system that you're building and in the companies that you're funding. Rhiannon, I'm curious, how often do you talk about your value system as a group of three of you, between yourself, Kathy and Sarah, did you sit down and have a conversation about what the things are that you want to value most in your founders and the way you deploy capital and how you carry yourselves as a team? It's absolutely an ongoing conversation. And it's certainly one that I think we all came into the partnership with our own assumptions. And we've grown and learned an incredible amount from each other in that approach, because there are so many ways that you can build an inclusive portfolio, but do it with an eye towards growth and success. And I think we all came into this with a very, very deep-seated knowledge that impact and growth and profitability are actually inclusive and strengthen each other rather than being opposed. And fundamentally, we all came in with that belief we reinforced that belief with one another and we worked through ways of ensuring that our portfolios could manifest that. But the pathway has been bumpy sometimes and we've gone in a number of different directions towards that goal because we all came with very different learnings and backgrounds. And that's been incredibly enriching and we are better people and certainly a better fund for it. And Kathy, how would you say that your skills complement each other? I think once you kind of get past the collegial agreement, it's such a natural place for each person's talents to shine through. You know, there's different roles that we'll play with companies based on what we feel those companies need. We'll different supports for each other in how we make sure that we can bring our best to the work we do while we're also supporting our own personal lives and our own personal journeys. But I also think the big lesson for partners in general is it's okay to disagree. Like it, the most important partnership in my life is the one I have with my partner, my husband. And he and I haven't agreed a lot of things in 30 <laughs> years, but we agree on the fundamentals. And I think for general partners like Sandpipers, you know, we're really privileged to have, I think, a healthy space. We make healthy space, purposeful space to have conversations where we are challenging with love, our thinking, because ultimately it's in the best interest of the founders if we do that. If we give our collective feedback to the founder, if we give our collective advice, or if we make a decision that's a yes, or in the cases where we have to make the difficult decision, half of our investors to say no, if we can have a collective answer based on our lived experiences of the three of us, it's going to be a better quality experience for the founder, regardless of whether or not we make an investment. And for us, that's as much a part of what Sandpiper Ventures is. And it's a manifestation of the values that we each bring to how we want to invest. Rhiannon, have you had your thinking challenged 
through your teamwork at Sandpiper Ventures and what would you say has been the biggest area of growth for you? And then Kathy, I'm going to ask you the same thing. A, a resounding yes. My entire sort of background has been very much about kind of showing off at the things that I was building and creating and having a sort of a, a public projection that I felt confident with. And that's not what this is about. This is much more about sort of making sure that there's a clear balance between showing off at things and making sure that you're there at the time when you're most needed, whether it be for the partnership, for the portfolio, or wherever you are in your personal life. So for me, it's been a real understanding of how could I, again, present the balance between impact and growth in a way that was honest, constructive, but remained very, very ambitious. So that's been a great learning and, and something that we've had a number of conversations about is how much of what we're doing is about good growth and good capitalism and how much of it is really, you know, making sure that we achieve the metrics of a VC and keep ourselves sustainable. Kathy, how about you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's been conversations where I've had to unlearn and relearn <laughs> things that I thought were truisms. And I think that's true of any anybody who wants to be in a meaningful partnership relationship. You have to have that kind of ability to think that, that you're accepting that feedback. I think the biggest thing that I've unlearned is I grew up in an industry that was built for speed, innovation economies and innovation companies venture capital, you know, some would argue is built for speed. But in dealing with the founders, I think in recognizing the pace that they want to go at and the pace that we want to do things at Sandpiper and to be even more strategic than, than you know, I would have probably been in, in some of my earlier businesses has allowed me to slow down. And in the slowing down, we've gotten more done and we've gotten faster. And I think for folks that are investing time in strategy, it's well worth the results. I remember in my 20s, when I used to have to write the annual business plan with a three-year business plan, and I'd have to you know, present that to my board of directors that I had for the JV, I used to annoy me to do it because <laughs> I used to think, I know what needs to get done next year. I don't need to write it down. I've got this. But what I've come to realize is that when I invest that time with other thoughtful leaders, the strategic plan is richer for it. And then I get to do what I love to do, which is turn to execution, which then the execution deliverables are going to be, you're going to yield a better result. And that's something that both Sarah and Rhiannon have allowed me to unlearn in the last couple of years. And I'm really blessed to be able to work with them on that. Rhiannon, what would you say you've, as you mentioned, mentor through the Creative Destruction Lab, done a lot of work with founders from various industries, what would you say are the necessary ingredients for a successful scaling company? A phenomenal team is certainly one of them. The ability to listen and pursue insights from your customers is the second one. And the ambition to pursue and continue to pursue where you're going. And there are a number of other things, but those are the three that will differentiate from others. Kathy, what's the most common mistake you see people make in operations? I think it's, I want to say it's not knowing when to say no, whoa, and go. Because <laughs> I think there's times when 
there is a pause needed where you need to kind of stand and reassess whether the process or the practice is working for you. And working most importantly, as Rihanna mentioned a few minutes ago, for the customer. Because at the end of the day, it's not really about us as founders. It's about what the customers feel. The woe is, you know, the, the acknowledgement of the risk. And the go is the intensity of aggression. Like, I do think that, you know, in Canada in particular, we can be even more ambitious with our growth agendas in our companies. And the founders I like to work with are the founders that want their companies to grow with or without them, right? So it's totally okay to be that superstar inventor and also be the superstar shareholder who wants that company to go. And, you know, so I think that, you know, from an operations perspective, understanding that there's times to say no, there's times to identify the risks or the woe moment. And there's times where you've got to really commit to the go and be okay with the race for market share, that's going to make sure that you're going to be a dominant player. I think if you aspire to be a boutique member of a market, then I think, you know, you leave some ambition on the side. And I think as women in particular, and folks that have been on the sidelines and marginalized for a long time, it's the time to take over the main track and dominate the go and dominate the market. Rhiannon, what has been the most surprising part about working with Kathy? The most surprising part, and this has now become for me something I know well, but when you first meet Kathy, you see this, you know, incredibly accomplished, intelligent entrepreneur and businesswoman. But the essence of Kathy is this empathy she has in the way that she is looking at the world around her, the way that she is thinking about what founders need. And Kathy, don't get me wrong, Kathy can be super hard, but she does it in a very fair way that is looking at it from the perspective of the other person, whether it's her partner or one of the founders or our banker, just bringing that empathy to the table is something that you, she doesn't wear on her sleeve, but it's a piece of the essence of who she is. And it's remarkable. And Kathy, what's been the most surprising part about working with Brianna? I think the um, the most surprising part has been the incredible diligence that Rhiannon takes in forging relationships with founders, becoming a trusted advisor. And I won't say it's surprising. It was something I had no, I didn't know about her before. And it's been unbelievably beautiful to watch how she invests in those relationships in a way that helps founders maybe see even more ambition for themselves than they would have initially seen. And I think, you know, as VCs, I think that's a gift that, you know, too few of us leave with founders is the confidence to be able to aim even higher. I think we, as an industry, demand, you know, that there's big returns and we demand, we have lots of demands. But to be able to get into the details and provide that strategically, to use her word earlier, surgical advice that allows those founders to gain confidence to go even faster and be more ambitious, all the while being able to be very practical and pragmatic about you know the outcome, I think is one of her many secret weapons and secret gifts. And the fact that you know along the way, I've seen her in some of our Sam Piper virtual team events, acknowledge some things that are pretty funny, and I won't share them here, but uh, she knows <laughs> what I'm talking about. So I'll leave it there. 
Rhiannon, why are those founder relationships building that confidence in founders and helping them see a version of themselves they may not be able to see? Where does that drive in you come from to make that come to life? Primarily, it comes from a fascination with what they're building. I'm so fortunate and I've been learning so much on this journey because the things that these founders are building are extraordinary. The ideation, the creation, the creativity, the level of knowledge is so far beyond everything I do. So much of it is selfish. I'm trying to understand and trying to be part of that. And part of it is also being able to sort of want to understand that and want to learn from it, but also bringing then a different perspective than theirs and therefore sort of wanting to push that learning for a desire to be better as it's appropriate. I never want to foist my opinion or my sort of direction on a founder, but I can bring a different perspective because I'm looking from a different background and my baggage and experience is very different. So I think it comes from there. It comes from just the, uh, ah, it's exciting. It's exciting to learn from these people. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hello. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Sonia. So today we're debriefing Kathy and Rhiannon, the powerhouse duo. I want to start with the year that Rhiannon spent on a sailboat. And my question for both of you, my answer is no, but have you ever gone on a cruise? No. Do you ever want to? Because it scares me. No. Okay. Are we all in the same boat? (laughs) And scene. So I think of Agatha Christie novels when I think of cruise ships. I don't know if you've ever seen Death on the Nile. And many of her murder mysteries involve ships. Maybe just one or two of them. But I feel like there's a lot that can happen because you're in a contained area with the same people for so long. She was there for a year on a sailboat. The ferry in Toronto, you can go from the mainland to the island. But I feel like that's fairly tame (laughs) in the world of sea exploration. And you can also see both sides at all times. Like you can see the island or you can see Toronto, depending on which way you're going. Do you like the ferry song there or are you not a fan of that either? I enjoyed the ferry. Okay. That's that's your limit. Yeah. (laughs) I also did the ferry between... Uh, Vancouver and Victoria Island once. Also a nice ferry. Amazing ferry. So I have been on a deep sea fishing trip before. And I remember what blew my mind is when we were releasing the fishing line. I think they told us to do about 60 arm lengths. And I was just thinking how deep that could possibly go. And then the captain gave us a piece of advice that I'll never forget He said, if you pull up a fish and it's red, do not touch it because there are some varieties that are incredibly venomous and we were probably over an hour away from shore and he said that you might not make it back in time. I think he was talking about scorpion fish, which are an incredibly painful and venomous type of fish. Oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> so I do not touch red fish. <laughs> In summary, I stopped fishing. <laughs> Doesn't matter what distance I'm at anywhere. I just don't touch it. 
Okay, so on like the same kind of topic as Rhiannon's one year um, sabbatical onto a boat, I was wondering for the two of you, what would you do with your time if you had a full year and just like the time and the means to take that off? What would you do during a sabbatical? Amara, go ahead. I feel like for me, it would be taking my photography full time and seeing all of the things I could do. I'm still limited in weekends and evenings right now. And so I think it would just be like, how much could I grow it? Just because in those weekends and evenings, I enjoy it so much. I feel like that's what I would do. So for me, I would want to do a lot of volunteering, specifically in animal conservation. It's always been a big passion of mine. And there are programs where you get to volunteer and experience a local culture or area. And sometimes it's nicknamed voluntourism because you are paying for an experience. So there is a bit of a caveat there. If you wanted to make the maximum amount of impact for a cause, you probably should just donate the funds that you are allocating to this trip. But I understand that it's kind of for my own experience. Is there a specific place you're keen to go to? Yeah, so I would want to go to Vietnam. They have a really cool national park there that hosts a bear sanctuary for sun and moon bears. Um, and it's run by an organization called Free the Bears. And these bears are rescued from the bear bile trade because in some Asian cultures, bear bile is used as a homeopathic medicine. And so Free the Bears goes around and rescues these bears and rehabilitates them. Oh, nice. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to imagine a whole year. So to answer this question. (laughs) So you know what a day is, right? It's 365. (laughs) (laughs) So I can just think of a couple things. Yeah. I would say concerts, playing music, seeing music live, et cetera. Sports, going to many sports games and doing it for like making a whole day out of it you know, and maybe traveling around and seeing some of my favorite teams and stuff like that. The last would be, there's some Broadway shows I've seen. I haven't seen as many as I'd like to see. Whether it's musicals or it's just theater, I think I'd make a lot more time for that. Sign as world tour. (laughs) Where I'm just observing things. (laughs) Maybe it could be a year where there's an Olympics and finally fulfill my dream of being a sportscaster at the Olympics. Perfect. Perfect. 